Hello, Internet. Welcome to Season 2 of Quiz and Hers, the podcast where we test each other's knowledge and the strength of our relationship in a 10-week battle for trivia glory. I am your defending Season 1 champion, Justin. Yeah, yeah. And I am here with the woman who will be trying to knock me off my throne this year, my fiancé, Hallie. Yep. We are back from a three-week hiatus in which we wrote some more games, played a lot of pub trivia, and... Won a few times. Won several times, actually. Yep. And spent a bunch of gift cards at bars after we won a bunch of gift cards. Yep. All right. Ready? Ready. This is season two, and the rules are changing a little bit from last time around, so even loyal season one listeners, you may not want to skip this part of the show today. Each week, uh, we will still be asking each other six questions, and they will still come from six different categories. We are retaining our categories arts and literature, sounds and screen, which is still music, movies, and TV, science, and sports and games, but we are collapsing history and geography into a single category, which we call simply times and places. And our sixth category this year will be called Everything Else. This category encompasses everything else quizworthy that doesn't fit into our usual five categories. So that could be religion, language, food and drink, mathematics, current events, business or marketing, mythology, government and civics, culture, law, and anything else that we can think of. So this is a wild card sort of a category for this season. Correct. Not everything fits into the you know, precise categories we had last season. So this kind of opens us up to more different kinds of questions, which should be fun. Exactly. Also, like last season, after each question, the quiz master will have a roughly five-minute discussion about the topic so that we can all learn a little bit more. Uh, We learned quite a lot last season, including that the geography and history categories don't really work very well because the geography category always ends up just being history anyway. Pretty much. So that's one thing we learned last year. And we are adjusting for that. Correct. All right. Are you ready to play? I'm ready. All right. I call today's game Once Upon a Quiz Night Dreary. Okay. Because every question will have something to do with one of my favorite authors of all time, Edgar Allan Poe. Of course. I wrote a poem. I thought this was going towards, like, you wrote a poem? Yeah. Okay, sorry, go on. I was going to say, I thought this was going towards, like, once upon a time, and then I was like, that doesn't seem consistent with you, so no. this makes a lot more sense. Once upon a quiz night dreary, as I revised, my eyes quite bleary, many a quaint and curious question on useless lore. As I sat, considering fapping, suddenly there came a rapping, as of something gently flapping, on my window by the door. What the fuck, I muttered. There was no tree there before. Open then I flung the pane, and it did strut a bird most vain, a raven like the mascot of my team from Baltimore. (laughs) Pop quiz, hotshot, he quoth, therefore, I will ask you my toughest questions du jour. At this challenge I did roar. I host a trivia podcast. You won't stump me, I'm sure. I was so sure that I would win, but the bird did simply grin. Who was the 210th pick in the NFL draft in 2004? (laughs) I said with bafflement, I'm not sure. Quoth the raven, Rahim Orr. <laughs> Tis just one question, I did grumble. I remain ready to rumble. What catchphrase is Phil Hartman known most for? My heart sank to the floor. That's not a name I've heard before. Quoth that asshole, Hi, I'm Troy McClure. 
<laughs> At the sight of my impending loss, I started to become quite cross. Ask another, and I'll show you what for. In the comics, who is grandfather to Thor? God damn it, I knew that, but I don't remember anymore. Quoth that little bastard. His name is Bor. So by now, I was quite pissed, four three answers having missed. These questions are ridiculous. Give me one more. Name the 2000 film about bombing the center of the earth, saving the world forevermore. Well worth violating this poem's meter for. Because I knew this, I, I was sure. <laughs> I exclaimed, it's the core. Quoth that prick. That was 03. 2000 <laughs> was deep core. At this point, I was truly fuming, with foul defeat lurking and looming. God, I fucking hate you, I swore. Ask me history, I implore. What year was the Battle of Balaclava during the Crimean War? Fuck you, I muttered, starting for the door. Quoth the motherfucker, 1854. O for five is just the worst, and in that moment I did burst. You black-feathered son of a whore! Enough, said I, my turn's in store. When do I quiz you and even the score? Quoth the raven, nevermore. Oh my god. <laughs> How can I live up to that? <laughs> God. I don't even know if I'll keep that in. I just the thought, poem? Yeah. You have to. I just thought you'd think it was funny. Why did you write a whole poem? You're Cause, insane. Because I thought you'd think it was funny. It was funny. You're crazy. All right. Let's do this. Ready? Okay. Yep. <laughs> Question one. Times and places. In his youth, Poe served in the Richmond Youth Honor Guard when the city hosted what hero of the Revolutionary War who visited the United States to celebrate the nation's semi-centennial? He visited the United States. I'm trying to think of somebody who wouldn't be in the U.S. already. I'm between two people. All right. Um, Lafayette. Yes. Yay! Very good. Hamilton, saving the day. <laughs> Musicals. Gross. They make you win. Marie Joseph Paul Yves Roque Gilbert de Motier, a.k.a. the Marquis de Lafayette, was born in 1757 and came from a respected chivalric family. He received his first commission as an officer of the Musketeers when he was just 13 years old. He was an early supporter of the American colony's revolt against Great Britain, and at the tender age of 19, he departed for America as a sort of official, sort of unofficial envoy from France. He was commissioned as a major general in the Continental Army, but at first was not allowed to command his own troops because he was foreign-born. Instead, he served as a member of George Washington's staff and became close friends with his superior officer. Washington dispatched him to the Battle of Brandywine, where the Americans had been routed. He was shot in the leg, but still managed to rally the troops and ensure an orderly retreat. He spent the winter of 1777 to 1778 with the troops at Valley Forge, sharing the famously terrible conditions they all endured. In 1779, he briefly returned to France, where he unsuccessfully tried to convince the government to invade the British Isles, though he did manage to convince them to send troops to America. He then came back to America, where he and his 400 men charged the British defenses at the Siege of Yorktown, besting them in hand-to-hand -hand combat and contributing to the final American victory. He even took part in the negotiations that led to the Treaty of Paris, formally ending the war. Cool. He returned to France, where he was hailed as the hero of two worlds. He spent the next several decades being involved in basically every major historical event in his home country. In 1789, King Louis XVI convened the Estates General, and Lafayette was one of the representatives of the nobility, the second estate. However, he broke with other nobles, advocating for voting by head rather than by estate, 
which had traditionally allowed the clergy and the nobles to outvote the much larger group of commoners. The commoners, Lafayette, and some representatives of the clergy declared themselves the National Assembly, but the king locked them out of the estates general. The group swore the famous tennis court oath, vowing not to disband until a constitution was ratified. Lafayette then authored the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, modeled after Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. He also served as commander-in-chief of the National Guard and originated the modern tricolor French flag. Wow. During the French Revolution, he worked to maintain order and chart a middle ground between the royalists and the radicals, which unfortunately made him unpopular with both sides. He was imprisoned in 1792 when he tried to flee the radical revolutionary government, but was caught by Prussian forces. Prussian King Frederick William II viewed him as a dangerous revolutionary. So, he was fleeing revolutionaries who hated him for being a royalist, and was captured by royalists who hated him for being a revolutionary. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, but he's killing it. Yeah. He was released in 1797 by a victorious Napoleon Bonaparte, but refused to swear allegiance to him because he had claimed power unconstitutionally. Right. In 1802, Lafayette was one of a tiny number of people who voted against making Napoleon consul for life, and then largely retreated from politics. He opposed the restored Bourbon monarchy in 1814, toured the U.S. in 1824 to celebrate the nation's upcoming 50th anniversary, and was a leader of the July Revolution of 1830, during which he refused an offer to rule the nation, and he tried to maintain order during the June Rebellion of 1832. Rule which nation? France. Okay. Sorry, so in the, the July Revolution of 1830, he was basically offered like the position of the head of the new French government, but okay. he turned it down because it was not based on any constitution. He said, like, we need to create a constitution and ratify it first, and then if I'm elected, that's fine. But, but didn't not he write gonna... this constitution? No, so he wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. There oh. was no constitution at this point, because the July Revolution had basically overturned the restored Bourbon monarchy, and so they tried to found another republic in France, and he said, you know, I'm not going to just take power if it's offered to me, right? I need to be elected according to a constitution that's been ratified by the people. Right. Yeah. Uh, he tried to maintain order during the June Rebellion of 1832, which is the event dramatized in Les Miserables. Lafayette died on May 20th, 1834 from pneumonia. He was buried in Paris under soil from Bunker Hill in the U.S. He was made an honorary U.S. citizen in 2002. The only question I have is, how the fuck has there not been a big-budget biopic made about this guy? Yeah. Like, what an incredible life. He does have a big role in Hamilton, you know. Lafayette. Neat. Look it up. It's question great. two, science. Wait, I also <laughs> want to say the fact that you fit in three musicals into one question. One, by my count. Well, one that you mentioned. Okay. And, and I meant the book, not the musical, but okay. And, okay, whatever. Les Mis. Yes. Hamilton. Not intentional. And he was a very model of a modern major general. I definitely did not say that. But you said major general. I mean, if we're stretching it that far, I guess I got 1776 in there, too, because I talked about the American Revolution. All right, fine. Question two, science. The titular fictional plague in The Mask of the Red Death may have been partly inspired by a real disease that Poe's wife Virginia was suffering from at the time and would eventually die from. What is this disease, which was called consumption at the time? I know. I think you do. Tuberculosis. Very good. Because we talked about that last season. Kafka. True, yeah. Kafka had tuberculosis. And also, um, Elizabeth Ann Seton's husband died from tuberculosis as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess it was 
way more common back then. I will talk about just how common it was. It's crazy. Okay. So, yeah, TB is caused by the bacterium Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which uh, makes sense. Here's the craziest thing you'll learn this whole game. It is estimated that even today, about one-third of the Earth's entire population is infected with TB. You know that myco is the prefix for fungus. Mm -hmm, like mycology. Yeah, but it's not a fungus. No, it's a bacteria. Which makes it very confusing, but I think they named it that because the bacteria resembles a fungus. Really? Huh. I didn't come across that while I was reading. Interesting. I didn't know that. Biomajor yeah. stuff. Anyway, yeah, so it's estimated that about one-third of the Earth's entire population is infected with TB right now. But there are two varieties of infection. Most people have latent TB, which has no symptoms and isn't contagious. So even if a third of all human beings have TB, most of them will be just fine. Only about 10% of latent TB cases manage to overwhelm the person's immune system and progress to active TB, which is contagious and potentially fatal. Classic symptoms of active TB are coughing blood, fever, sweating, and weight loss. And that last one is where the historic name consumption comes from, because it seemed to sort of be consuming the people from the inside, right? Uh, active TB is spread through the air by coughing, sneezing, or spitting. Humans have been battling TB since antiquity. The oldest evidence for infection in humans dates to around 4000 BC, and evidence of the disease has also been found in Egyptian mummies. As you would expect, many treatments were proposed over the years. This is my favorite one. Dr. John Krogan, who owned Mammoth Cave, brought infected people there between 1838 and 1845, thinking that the stable temperature and pure air would cure the disease. None of them lived for more than a year, because, yeah, of course they didn't. Magic. Yeah. It's magical temperatures and air is supposed to cure TB. Of course. Nope, didn't work. Leeches must have <laughs> been better. Yeah. Robert Koch, K-O-C-H, identified the bacteria that caused TB in 1882. I think it's Koch, as in Koch's postulates. Is it the same one? I don't know. I think I know too much about science for this discussion. Well, this Sorry. is why I don't. This is why I don't usually <laughs> ask bio questions. I usually do like physics questions. This is like a good boards refresher if uh, <laughs> if anyone needs it. All right. Um, <laughs> fine, Koch. Whatever. Robert Koch identified the bacteria that caused TB in 1882, and in 1890 he developed tuberculin, an extract of M. tuberculosis, as a remedy for the disease. It didn't work but it was later adapted as a test for latent TB. So he tried to create this extract from the bacteria that he thought would be a cure, but it didn't actually cure it, but you can use it to test if someone is infected with latent TB. I think that's the, the PPD. Yeah, The PPD so. test, when they inject a little bit of it onto your skin, yep. and then if it gets raised and like bruised and all that, that's considered positive. Yeah, I think that's right. Koch won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his original 1882 discovery of the tuberculosis bacillus in 1905. An effective vaccine was developed the next year, in 1906, by Albert Calmet and Camille Guerin. Guerin. Guerin, probably. Good try. And what, do you know how to say it? No, I'm not French. Okay. The vaccine is derived from bovine strain of TB. Known as the Bacille Calmet Guerin vaccine, or BCG, which is what I will call it for the rest of my life, so I never have to say that again. That's what everyone calls it. It didn't become widespread in the developed world until after World War II, which is baffling considering how unbelievably widespread TB was at the time. When did they create it? 1906. 
And it took them like... 40 years wow. for it to catch on. That's crazy. Yeah. In, in the 19th century and the first half of the 20th, it was just fucking rampant among poor urban people, even in the West. In 1815, one out of every four deaths in England was due to consumption. Holy crap. Yeah, one in four. A hundred plus years later, in 1918, one in every six deaths in France was still caused by TB. Why were they not vaccinating? Yeah. Right? Maybe they couldn't afford it. Yeah, possibly. That's yeah. my guess. By the 1950s, though, improvements in sanitation, widespread vaccination, and the advent of antibiotics like streptomycin dramatically reduced the incidence of TB in the West. But it is still extremely common in developing nations, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. In fact, it is still the second most deadly infectious disease in the world behind HIV-AIDS, and it still causes over a million deaths every year. Drug-resistant varieties emerged in the 1980s, leading the World Health Organization to declare TB a global health emergency in 1993. Now that there are strains that can't be killed with antibiotics, we will probably never be able to completely eradicate the disease. But did you know there's a four antibiotics that are used for... They use this combination of four. Against the drug-resistant ones? Yeah, let's see if I can remember. The mnemonic is RIPE. Okay. Rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, ethambutol, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yay, dental school. Learning <laughs> things like how to cure TB. So useful. <laughs> well, that was a downer. So here's a yeah. less depressing TB fact. Edvard Munch painted The Sick Child, which depicted his beloved older sister Johann Sophie's struggle with TB. Johann Sophie died of TB when Edvard was 14, nine years after the disease had taken his mother. Actually, come to think of it, that wasn't less depressing at all, was it? No. Oh, well. No, it was not. <laughs> all right, question three. So you are two for two right now. Yes, I am. Shit. Okay. Arts and literature. The Edgar Award, named for Poe, is given out each year to honor the best works in what literary genre, which Poe more or less invented with what he called his Tales of Ratiocination. Oh, this definitely was on Jeopardy. This has been on Jeopardy more than once, I'm I know. Sure. Let me think. Um, maybe Thriller? Is that your answer? Sure. Close. Horror? Mystery. Mystery. Oh, man. Yeah. Half credit. No. Damn it. We're not doing that bit again. He invented the mystery Pretty genre? much. I'll I talk about it. I figured he didn't invent that, but I figured, like, thrillers. Like... I'll talk about it. He pretty much invented the mystery fiction. Oh, come on. I also would have accepted detective fiction or anything. So but he didn't write detective fiction. He did. Wasn't Arthur Conan Doyle before this? No. Wow. He was about four decades after, I think. Wow. I did not know. Yeah. Oh, man. Mystery fiction in its modern form is a fairly young literary genre. It emerged in the early 1800s, which was, not coincidentally, also the age in which police forces became institutionalized and professional detectives became a thing, because as more and more people moved into cities, a small constabulary was no longer enough. In 1841, Poe published The Murders in the Rue Morgue in Graham's Magazine. This wasn't the very first story that could be called a mystery, but it is generally acknowledged to be the first modern detective story. The character, the main character, C. Auguste Dupin, is the first fictional detective and heavily influenced the characteristics of later ones, including Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. Cool. Dupin is portrayed as a brilliant but eccentric analytical thinker 
who lends his assistance to the incompetent constabulary, solving the gruesome murder of a mother and daughter for his own amusement, and to exonerate the police's primary suspect, whom he believes to be innocent. Dupin's method, ratiocination, resembles the deductive method of Sherlock Holmes. Poe says that, quote, the extent of information obtained lies not so much in the validity of the inference as in the quality of the observation, end quote. It so, sounds like Arthur Conan Doyle plagiarized a little bit of this. Well, it was, yeah, it, I wouldn't call it plagiarism, but it was, but definitely, he ran with it. It was definitely a conscious influence on his writing. There's I no think doubt about that. He must have done, I feel like he did more with it than Poe did, based well, yeah, on what people know. Poe only wrote three of the stories, three detective stories, and I'll okay. tell you about all three of them, but yeah. Also similar to Sherlock Holmes stories, Murders in the Rue Morgue and its sequels are narrated by Dupin's unnamed friend and roommate. Dupin ultimately solves the case and the innocent suspect is freed, though modern mystery fiction aficionados have argued that the solution itself is in bad faith by Poe. Without spoiling too much, the actual killer was never previously introduced and so would not even be considered by readers, a narrative choice that no self-respecting mystery writer of today or James Patterson would make. <laughs> yeah. Dupin also appeared in two more Poe stories. The Mystery of Marie Roget, published in 1842, is the first murder mystery story inspired by a real crime, the unsolved murder of Mary Cecilia Rogers, whose body was found floating in the Hudson River. Poe transplanted the crime from New York City to Dupin's home city of Paris and changed some of the details, but he considered it an earnest attempt on his part to use his writing to make progress on the real case. Notably, Dupin does not actually solve this case, but he does discredit the police's favored theory and concludes that they will solve it if they can locate the killer's boat. Like the real murder of Mary Rogers, the mystery of Marie Roget is never satisfyingly solved. In The Purloined Letter, published in 1844, Dupin recovers a letter stolen from the Queen of France, thwarting a blackmailing plot by putting himself into the mind of the thief. You can see why the Mystery Writers of America named their annual awards after Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. The Edgars honor the best in mystery fiction and nonfiction across different media, including novels, short stories, plays, and TV episodes. They also have awards for Best Young Adult Book and Best Paperback Original, which amusingly embraces mystery fiction's reputation, an undeserved reputation in my view, as disposable, mass-produced low art. Yeah. Do you know if Arthur Conan Doyle won it? Um, Maybe not because he wasn't American. I actually don't believe it had begun at that point. Cool. All right. Question four, sounds and screen. Edgar Allan Poe appears on the cover of what Beatles album? That's all you get. Shit. I don't know. I can't even picture it, which is bad. I think you can solve this one. How? Well, there's only so many options, for one thing. Help. Is that your answer? Sure. Or are you just asking for help? Both. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, so your answer is help? Sure. No, you're going to kick yourself. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, I thought you meant like he was the picture. I was thinking... I. I take it back. You can't take it back. I just told you. I don't like how you worded that. He appears on the cover of what Beatles album? You should be like, along with many others. That would make it way too easy. I'm picturing an album that's just Poe's face. That would make it way too easy. But I'm just picturing his face. That's not fair. Well, that's not what the question said. Yes, it is. No, it didn't say exclusively appears on. Yeah, but it didn't say he's a little tiny speck. Well, Sgt. Peppers is the only one that has 
famous people other than the Beatles on the cover. Well, so I that, that was, was the puzzle. I didn't know. No, you could have puzzled that out. Fine. All Whatever. Right. Let's talk about Sergeant Peppers. Sergeant Peppers? Yeah. What? I just always say Sergeant Pepper. Oh, I say Sergeant Peppers. I don't know. Okay. Uh, it was released in the summer of 1967, appropriately coinciding with the Summer of Love, and it was the Beatles' eighth studio album. Widely considered to be one of the first examples of a concept album, it was also the first rock album to win the Grammy for Album of the Year, which until that point had been dominated by more traditionally styled solo acts, particularly the chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra. The idea for the album originated with Paul McCartney, who conceived of a song about a military band from the Edwardian era while on a flight to London. This idea became the title track of Sgt. Pepper's. After they recorded the song, Paul had the idea to do a whole album that portrayed a performance by the fictional band, an aesthetic impression that was reinforced by doing away with the traditional silent gaps between the songs. The Beatles opted instead to crossfade between them to give the feeling of a continuous live show. Of course, nothing on the album sounds even remotely like music that a military band would perform. No. But the idea was that performing under alter egos would let them experiment more than they could on an actual Beatles album. I don't know. Something tells me that the influence of psychedelic drugs and Eastern spirituality probably would have shown through no matter what the idea for the album was. Yeah. The Beatles had retired permanently from touring in 1966. Since they knew that they wouldn't ever perform the songs on Sgt. Pepper's Live, they recorded pieces that couldn't be recreated on stage, treating the recording studio as a musical instrument in and of itself, an approach that has largely been credited to their producer, George Martin. While it's not quite as out-and-out -out weird as its successor, the White Album, Sgt. Pepper's continues the Beatles' musical evolution that had begun with their previous album, Revolver. Influences from 1960s drug culture are clear, as are influences from classical music, and the album is riddled with the use of non-traditional instrumentation. The album contains some of the Beatles' most iconic and recognizable songs, including the title track, With a Little Help from My Friends, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, Getting Better, When I'm 64, A Day in the Life, and the song that I have had stuck in my head for weeks, Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. So what about that cover art? Designed by contemporary pop artists Peter Blake and Jan Hayworth, it depicts the Beatles in brightly colored military-ish uniforms in character as the fictional Sgt. Pepper's band, surrounded by dozens of people, some famous, some anonymous. The idea was that their alter egos had just finished an outdoor concert and posed for a photo with their fans, and the effect was achieved by setting up cardboard cutouts and wax sculptures. In addition to Edgar Allan Poe, the fans include fellow writers Aldous Huxley, Dylan Thomas, H.G. Wells, James Joyce, Oscar Wilde, George Bernard Shaw and Lewis Carroll, musician Bob Dylan, historical figures David Livingston and T.E. Lawrence, boxer Sonny Liston, whom we've talked yeah. about previously, and wax sculptures of the four Beatles themselves, sporting their suits and mop tops from the Beatlemania days. So they took, this was like a photo. It was a real photo. Wow. There was no Photoshop back then. You had to do everything in camera. Well, you could cut and paste stuff still. Yeah, no? but nothing this complicated. You uh, had to set it up for real. Wow. Yeah. And there were plenty of other people as well. Blake and Hayworth won the Grammy for Best Album Cover Graphic Arts because, well, yeah, yeah it's arguably the greatest cover art in music history. Yep. All right. Question five. Everything else. One of Poe's most famous short stories is titled The Cask of Amontillado. What, specifically, is Amontillado? I'm thinking. Okay. I think it's... 
Madeira? Is that your answer? Yeah. Very close. Oh, come on. Can you prompt to well, be like you're not specific enough or no, something? No, it, it was specific enough. It's just wrong. Oh, man. It's sherry. Damn it. So I've written here sherry, parentheses, prompt on wine or fortified wine. So if you had given one of those, I would have prompted you for Come more. On. But it sounds like we would have gotten to Madeira, not Sherry. So Fine. All right. Sherry is a Spanish fortified wine, meaning that it is a wine to which a distilled spirit has been added. Originally, this was done to preserve the wine, since ethanol kills bacteria, resulting in a wine that could be stored and safely consumed for longer periods of time. Nowadays, we have other methods of preserving wine, but fortified wines have taken on their own identities over time and inhabit a unique corner of the world of wine. Some of the most well-known varieties include Madeira, which you mentioned, Marsala, Port, Vermouth, and, of course, Sherry. Sherry comes from Andalusia in southern Spain. It is made from white grapes, primarily Palomino, grown near the city of Jerez de la Frontera. In fact, sherry is an anglicized form of the word Jerez. See, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking it was Spanish, and that's why I didn't think of sherry, because the name mm -hmm. isn't very Spanish. Yeah, no, sherry is the English word for Jerez. Okay. Yeah. Many fortified wines have a spirit added partway through fermentation, which kills the yeast, stopping fermentation and preserving some of the sugar content, resulting in a sweeter wine. But sherry is not fortified until after the grapes have fully fermented into a base wine. Since all of the sugar in the base wine has already been fermented, most styles of sherry are dry. Dry being the opposite of sweet for any non-wine geeks out there in internet land. <laughs> Once the base wine is ready, it is sampled, the winemaker determines what type of sherry it will become, and then a destillado, which is a spirit distilled from wine grapes, is added to a mature sherry. This mixture is then added to the base wine. If the spirit were added directly to the young sherry, it would shock it and ruin the wine's flavor. So you have to put it into a fully aged, mature sherry first, then mix that into the young sherry. Okay. After being fortified, the young sherry is aged in American oak barrels. The barrels are only filled up about 80% of the way, leaving what is traditionally said to be the space of two fists for the floor to develop. Floor, Spanish for flour, is a layer of yeast that forms on top of the aging sherry, protecting it from oxidation and imparting the fresh bread flavor that makes sherry so unique. Fresh what flavor? Bread. Oh, bread. It has like bready flavor to Does it. Does it get carbonated? No. Okay. Sherry is aged using a solera system, which literally means on the ground. In a traditional solera, you would have barrels stacked on top of each other, with the oldest, most mature wine in the barrels on the ground, hence the name. The youngest sherry goes in the top barrels. After some amount of time, typically a year, you would take some proportion of the aged sherry, say one half, out of the bottom barrels for bottling. Then you would move half the sherry from the next level up into the bottom barrels, and so on, mixing the newer product with the older. The idea is that there is some small remnant of the very oldest wine from that solera in every bottle, mm -hmm. though that amount obviously becomes vanishingly small over time infinitesimal. Yes, infinitesimally small. Uh, uh, the average definitely. age of a barrel of sherry asymptotically approaches the number of levels, or scales, divided by the fraction of each barrel that is transferred. Nowadays, the old system of tiered containers is less common, and most soleras just meticulously label each barrel to track the movement of their sherry. This is why most sherries aren't labeled with a vintage year. They're blends of older, more mature vintages and younger ones. 
The Solera system is also used in aging certain beers, rums, whiskeys, and vinegars. Cool. Yeah. I want to try. I don't think I've ever had shit. No, wait, I did. We had it in wines class at Cornell. Yeah. I tried it there once. I think it's the only time I've ever tried it. Did you it. like it? I liked it a lot. Yeah, I did. So, and then I never had it again. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I did like it. So what's a Montiato? Oh, well, yeah. it's one style of sherry among several. Fino, the driest and palest variety, is aged entirely under floor. Manzanilla is a particularly light type of Fino. Amontillado is a darker variety that is aged under floor, then exposed to oxygen. Oloroso is made similarly, but spends even more time exposed to oxygen, producing a richer, darker wine. Jerez Dolce is a sweet variety made from Pedro Jimenez or Moscatel grapes. And finally, so-called cream sherries are Amontillados or Olorosos that have been sweetened after fermentation. No, thank you. Yeah, no, I don't want to, I don't want those because I don't like sweet wine very much. But yes, we should definitely try some other sherries. Yeah, did you know point. it's Fraser's favorite drink? I did not know that he because has I've a only little... seen one episode of that show. Well, I've seen all of it. I know. And he drinks a little glass of it every day when he gets home. <laughs> and I think it's classy. All right, ready for question six? Yep. So you're two for five right I know. now, right? I know. Okay. Don't remind me. Thank you. I think you should get this one. I hope so. Question six, sports and games. The Baltimore Ravens are famously named after the Poe poem. A previous NFL franchise left Baltimore in 1984, and Charm City was without a team until another team moved in and became the Ravens in 1996. Name both teams in that order. And as Ravens fans, you should know this. Okay, so the Browns and the Colts. Okay. The Colts were the ones that left, and then... The Browns became the Ravens, and then they started the Browns in Cleveland. Yes, correct. So Yay! Colts left, and the Browns came to town and became the Ravens. I know my Ravens. Yes, good. So, let's talk about this. It's one of the crazier stories in the history of sport. Yeah. The original Houston Texans moved to Baltimore for the 1953 NFL season, becoming the Colts. They played at Memorial Stadium which was awesomely nicknamed the world's largest outdoor insane asylum. <laughs> Rock on Charm City. Oh my god. Memorial Stadium was originally built in 1950 and was last renovated when the Colts arrived in 53. So by the late 60s, it was considered inadequate for the needs of the Colts, as well as the Orioles, Baltimore's Major League Baseball franchise. They were both playing they, at the same place? They shared the same facility, yes. Wow, okay. In 1972, Robert Ursay took over as owner of the Colts and immediately clashed with the city and state governments, who did not want to use any public funds to build a new stadium. By the early 80s, Ursay was covertly visiting markets without a team, though he continued to publicly deny any plans to move the Colts. On March 2, 1984, the NFL team owners voted to allow Ursay to move his team to a new city of his choice. By now, it was no secret that his negotiations with Phoenix and Indianapolis were progressing, so the Maryland state legislature stepped in. No, they didn't agree to partially fund a new stadium, or even to put up the money as a loan to be repaid to the state, which was the original plan for a while. No, on March 27th, the Maryland Senate passed a bill granting the city of Baltimore the right to seize ownership of the Colts via eminent domain, which would strip the team from Ursay and make it state law that they had to stay in Baltimore. So they were all huge Colts fans. Yeah. The city loved the Colts. 
The bill still needed to pass the House and to be signed into law, so Ursay acted quickly. The next day, he called up the mayor of Indianapolis and sealed a deal to move the team to the newly constructed Hoosier Dome. At 10 o'clock p.m., 15 moving trucks arrived under the cover of darkness at the Colts' training facility, and within eight hours, everything owned by the team had been evacuated from Baltimore. Oh my god. The eminent domain bill did indeed become law the next day, but the trucks were already on the road. Wow. They each took a different route to Indianapolis to avoid the Maryland State Police, which is my favorite detail of this whole story. That's crazy. The Indianapolis Colts were officially introduced in a press conference, and the only vestige of the team that remained in Maryland was the Baltimore Colts marching band, who had grabbed their uniforms and hid them in a cemetery until <laughs> Ursay said they could keep them. Oh my god. The band were vocal advocates for returning the NFL to Baltimore, coming to be known as Baltimore's pro football musical ambassadors. That's so cool. Yeah. I love them. The upstart United States Football League swiftly relocated their champions, the Philadelphia Stars, to Baltimore, but they played just one season and won another title before the USFL imploded in 1986. The Canadian Football League placed an expansion team called the Baltimore Stallions, get it, in the Charm City in 1994. No. Hmm? Colts? Stallions? Oh, I'm like, get what? <laughs> no, that's it. That's all there is to get. <laughs> okay. Uh, the CFL placed the Baltimore Stallions in the Charm City in 1994, and they proved very successful on the field and quite popular. So they were part of the CFL? Yes. Have, has there ever since been a CFL team that played in the U.S.? There were a few at this time. The CFL was trying to expand into the U.S. It didn't really last, but there were a couple others, yeah. Bringing Even it, though... That's bringing it back to the last... Your oh, last yeah, the, sports the, and games one in last season. The football codes that we talked about, yeah. Yep. Uh, even though the Stallions won the 1995 Grey Cup, the news that Art Modell was planning to move the Browns to Baltimore killed the city's interest in the Stallions, who fled north to become the Montreal Alouettes. Originally, Modell planned to bring the Browns' name, history, and records to Baltimore, like Ursay had taken the entire Colts' heritage with him. But Cleveland fans cried foul, and Baltimore fans were uneasy about stealing a team in the same way that their beloved Colts had been taken from them. Ultimately, a precedent-setting compromise was reached where the Browns suspended operations and the Ravens, technically an expansion team, took over the Browns' contracts. I'm confused. So the Browns were in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. They were gonna come to Baltimore. As the Browns. As the Browns. Yeah. And then it sort of, like, split? Yeah, so the Cleveland fans were really angry about this, and the Baltimore fans didn't like the idea of stealing a team's history the way yeah. that the Colts' history had been stolen from them. So what they did was officially the Browns organization suspended operations. The Ravens were technically an expansion franchise, but they took over the contracts of all of the Browns' players. And then what happened to the Browns? Well, I'm getting to that. Oh, okay. The Browns returned in 1999, building their roster through an expansion draft. So the Browns today still have all of the history and records associated with the Cleveland Browns that moved to become the Ravens. But so how they long were, were they not? Three years. Okay. Yeah. So the Browns returned in 99, built their roster through an expansion draft. So even and they though, still haven't recovered. Yep. They've been terrible <laughs> ever since. While the Ravens have won two Super Bowls. That's so sad. Yeah. For them. And the Baltimore Colts marching band became Baltimore's marching Ravens. They still play at every home game. Yep. Rock on, Charm City. And I would love to be one of them someday, <laughs> if ever we move to Baltimore. Yeah, if we ever. That's end up my back dream. There. All right. Well, 
that will do it for the first episode of season two. So you have three correct answers out of six. I'll take it. Pretty good. That's usually what we're aiming for most games. I think that's better than I started with last season because I started with two and a half. Two. And let's not start that again. I'm not starting. I'm just saying it's even better if I did get that than if I did get that. For what it's worth, I still would have won last season if you've had that extra half All right, point. whatever. So it doesn't just much matter anyway. Shove it in my face, why don't you? <laughs> All right, that'll do it for today. We'll be back next week. Hallie will have six questions for me. Until then, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at quizandhers at gmail.com. Tweet us at quizandhers. We're also quizandhers on Facebook. We have an Instagram now, which is also at quizandhers. Hallie yeah. handles that because I don't really understand what it is. <laughs> What else? I don't know. We're everywhere now. Yeah. So just reach out. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any ideas. Yep. And we will be back next week. And until then, we will say goodbye. Bye. This is season two of our... Nope. What happened? I don't know. I just fell apart. <laughs> that was quick. This is the... <sighs> God, what am I doing? I don't know. What am I doing? Do you want me to do it? No. Okay. All right. I can jump in. I got it. Okay.